Scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 39. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom, call, whom the Lord our God will call. It is now time for Children's Bible Hour. You receive invitations all the time. How do you decide whether or not to accept an invitation? Scripture is filled with heartfelt invitations from God to you. He invites those who are exhausted, curious, searching, or in need to find what we need most in Him. Will you accept the invitation? As you can see, we're in a sermon series called You're Invited, looking at some of the appeals and some of the invitations all throughout Scripture. And as we think about Commission Sunday for next week, it makes a lot of sense to look at the invitation that Jesus extended to his disciples and by extension to all of us right before he was taken up into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. We call it the Great Commission, but you could also call it the Great Invitation. It's from Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That commission, that invitation is for all of us. And it's not just a committee we have at church. It's not just a missions ministry. It's not just three special days a year we call Commission Sunday. It is who we are. It is what we're about. No matter what you do as a job or what you do during the day, no matter who you are, where you live, how old you are, we are to be disciples who make disciples. We are to answer and respond to Jesus' invitation. With that thought in mind, we want you to start prayerfully thinking about your role in what God is doing in this world through missions specifically for Commission Sunday next week. And so we made a video to remind us of God's invitation of his calling on us. Watch this video. Look around you. There is so much work to do. This world is in no condition for us to simply sit back and watch. There is a desperate, tangible need for Jesus, a glimpse of hope in the midst of hopelessness. Jesus experienced this. He saw it firsthand. The need broke his heart and filled him with compassion. He turned to his disciples and said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. This alone should stir our hearts. It's a calling an invitation to make a difference, to share the truth of the gospel, to be a light in the darkness, to be the church. It's time for us to look outward, to turn our focus to the field, to answer the call and passionately 
share the love of Jesus. This is our mandate. This is our mission. Jesus invites us. Jesus calls us. Are you ready to do the work? You know, we do Commission Sunday three times a year, but we don't want something we do so regularly because we do three times a year and we've done it for several years. We don't want it to become just automatic. We don't want to just go through the motions. We don't want it to lose its impact and its meaning and its significance in our hearts and our minds because it truly is who we are to be, people who answer that calling, that commission, people who respond to that invitation to go and to make disciples and to baptize and to teach. God is doing some amazing things through our efforts here. We're just a small part. It's God who provides the power. I hope that maybe this week in the bulletin you had a chance to read Jana Miller's story. If you didn't, I would encourage you to go back Look through your emails uh, or go to their website and look at the bulletin and read that story of Jana. By the way, Jana is about to come back to the U.S. after several years in Zambia. But recently she had a reunion event for so many families that she has had a part in bringing together, placing kids back with their parents or back with their families. And she had this huge reunion and it reminded her of, of all of those stories. Every child, every family was a story of God's work. And this is what she said in her own words. She said, I could go on and on with story after story of loss and adversity and brokenness followed by redemption. There were and still are many stories that I don't fully understand. But what I know for sure is that God shows up and continues to be woven into each one. When things seem hopeless, he makes a way. That is so true. That's spoken by someone who is on the front lines of the transformative work of sharing the gospel, of bringing reconciliation and redemption to pain and difficulty, especially with children and families. And so I would encourage you to be a part of what God is doing. Be praying about the mission efforts of this church and be, be involved personally by giving sacrificially next Sunday on Commission Sunday. As the video said, it is our mandate, it is our mission. Jesus calls us, he invites us to go, he invites us to make disciples, to baptize and to teach. But I think also embedded in that commission, embedded in that great invitation, is another invitation, and that's for those to whom we go. You see, we extend an invitation to them. It is the invitation to hear the gospel. It's an invitation to come to know Jesus. It's an invitation to respond to Jesus in faith and in trust, to receive <clears throat> the forgiveness and salvation that he offers. That's why we go. That's why we send. That's why we support missionaries. You see, every invitation anticipates a response. When we share the gospel, we anticipate a response. Every invitation anticipates a response. This is true in all aspects of life, isn't it? If someone says, hey, do you want to go to lunch on Wednesday? They expect you to say something. They probably want you to say yes, unless their boss or their spouse has put you up to making the invitation. But if they truly want to go to lunch with you, they want you to say yes. But certainly they want you to respond in some way. That's the nature of an invitation. When you get an invitation to a party or a wedding, many times you have to do what? You have to RSVP. 
You have to get back with them and, and let them know, yes, we can be there, we, we graciously and gratefully accept, or no, we have to decline this time. One of the uh, most common places I think this is seen is in a wedding or a marriage proposal. Right? When the guy gets, <clears throat> gets down on his knee and he extends that ring and he says, will you marry me? In many ways, it's an invitation. He's saying, can we do life together? Do you love me and can we join together in marriage? Now, is that guy on his knee with ring extended anticipating a response? Absolutely. Is there a desired response? You bet. And the longer that response takes, <laughs> the more awkward it gets. And if by chance the response is no thank you, then it really gets awkward, right? Maybe some of you have been there. Maybe you have friends who've been there. It's not always a bad thing. It is an awkward thing, but not always a bad thing. I heard about one couple. She didn't say no, but when, when he extended the ring and asked her to marry him, she was so shocked, she was so surprised that she just laughingly kind of swatted his hand. Well, she knocked the ring out of his hand. That's not a huge deal, except for the fact that this proposal took place on a boat. Yeah, you know what happened. She knocked the ring out of his hand, it went overboard. And he soon went overboard after it. <clears throat> I never heard if he found it or how the relationship went from there, but that was not the response that he was looking for. When an invitation is extended, there is a desired response expected. When we open up the New Testament, we see God intervening in our lives. Really, that's all of Scripture. God intervening in our lives. God bringing his creation back to him, making a way for us to live in fellowship with him. He sent his son, the word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. And when he sent Jesus, Jesus invites us into God's kingdom through him and in his name. He invites us, he extends the invitation for us to have life, abundant life, eternal life, for us to have forgiveness and salvation in him. How do you respond? You see, I think Jesus anticipates a response from us. And I think there is a desired response from us. And that's what we want to look at this morning. There's probably a lot of responses from us, right? I mean, the life of a disciple of Christ means we respond daily in different ways. But where does it begin? Where does it start? We go back to Acts and we see Jesus has been crucified. He's been buried. But by the power of God, just as Jesus said would happen, God has raised him to life. And he has appeared to many people, and then he has ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. His apostles, who just weeks earlier found themselves in that unsettling, uncertain, in-between time, right after Jesus' death on the cross, right before his resurrection. And if you know anything about what they were doing, you know they were behind locked doors, huddled in fear, and now, all of a sudden, as Acts opens up, we see a whole different mindset from the apostles, don't we? To me, it is one of the greatest testimonies to the validity of the resurrection of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? These apostles who ran scared when Jesus was arrested, who huddled in fear after he was crucified, 
Now, suddenly, what are they doing as we open up the book of Acts? The Spirit of God has unleashed them into the world with boldness and fire. And they are beginning a revolution for the cause of Christ. And I look at those guys and I say, are those the same guys? What has happened? What is different? Jesus was raised. That's what was different. One of the greatest testimonies to the validity of the resurrection in my mind. So in Acts chapter 2, the Jews have gathered in Jerusalem for one of the three main Jewish festivals, Pentecost, or the Festival of the Weeks, where they celebrate Moses receiving the Ten Commandments from God. And suddenly, the Spirit of God shows up in a big and a bold and a visible way and indwells the apostles. Acts 2 says there is a sound of rushing wind that fills the room, and there's little tongues of fire that appeared above their heads. I remember as a child going to Bible class on the flannel graph, there was always like this little flame of fire above the apostle's head. I don't know what a tongue of fire looked like. I think there's a little bit of a play on words here with them speaking in tongues, as we'll see in just a minute. But there was some visible, some observable, observable uh, sign of the Spirit over them with these tongues of fire. And these apostles began to speak in different languages. The text says they speak in tongues, and it explains what that means. They speak in a language that is not natural to them, a language that they hadn't studied. They hadn't put in their Rosetta Stone tapes and learned that language. It would be like me standing up here speaking in French or speaking in Mandarin or on some days just trying to get through English, I think, for me, but speaking a language that is not natural to you. Well, that would get your attention, wouldn't it? You would, you would think, wow, what's going on here? I know he hasn't studied French. So what's happening? And, and some of the people who were there, some of the Jews who were there that day, they thought, okay, this is, this is something big is happening. This is a sign, a symbol of something. But others who were there, they just said, oh, these guys are crazy. This bizarre thing we're witnessing, those guys probably just hit the bottle a little bit early and they're a little tipsy. And I want you to notice how Peter responds to what is happening. If you have a Bible, look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and he quotes the prophecy that his audience, this Jewish audience in Jerusalem for this festival, they would have known, they would have heard before. And so he quotes it. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, there's the invitation. There at the end of that quote, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's an offer to have fellowship with God. Everyone whose faith is in the Lord, who calls on his name, who surrenders to his authority, they will receive 
salvation. But who is Peter talking about? More specifically, who is Joel talking about in his prophecy? Whose name is it that we're supposed to call upon? I think it's so significant that Peter uses this Old Testament prophecy to make this point. Because remember, this crowd, many of them, the Jewish people who actually put Jesus on the cross, they didn't crucify Jesus necessarily because they didn't like him. It was because he wasn't who they thought he should be. You see, in their minds, their Hebrew Bibles, were, they were, those scriptures were pointing to a different Messiah, someone who was going to come and save them, establish a kingdom on earth, a government, maybe a military, and rescue the covenant people of God. And this was not Jesus in their minds. And what does Peter do? He goes back to those same Hebrew Bible scriptures, and he shows how, in fact, it is Jesus These people were waiting on their Messiah, their version of Messiah. And Jesus wasn't him, so they got rid of him. And now Peter backs up and he uses the prophecy of old and he begins to piece together a case for the identity of Jesus. Like a good attorney taking all of the evidence and building a case. Like a good composer taking all the different tunes and sounds and combining them in this beautiful beautiful symphony Peter begins to put the pieces together to form this picture of Jesus as the true Messiah, the true king of Israel, the king of all kings. He makes this connection using what the prophet said from long ago, and he ties that with what is unfolding right in front of their eyes, not just in these last days, which he says are beginning now, but on this very day as the Spirit pours himself out in a visible way among the people. This day was prophesied and predicted by Joel, who I might assume didn't even know what this moment would look like. These are the beginnings of the last days. And so Peter continues in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Isn't that a great phrase? That's that's an underlinable phrase, isn't it? A highlightable phrase. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And the truth is, if you're with Jesus, it's impossible for death to keep its hold on you. And so Peter answers the question when he says, call on the name of the Lord, call on his name. Who is it? Is Jesus the true Lord, the true King of kings? And then Peter goes on to even talk about David. Again, remember his crowd is a Jewish crowd. They know David. He's one of the, he is the most revered king in all of Israel in their past. And Peter says, David even was pointing to Jesus. Again, he's putting these pieces together. Jesus is the one. And rather than receive him, rather than welcome him, rather than embrace him as the Messiah, what did they do? What did this crowd do? Peter says, you nailed him to a cross. You killed him. Ouch. 
Look at verse 36. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You messed up, people. He was the one, the one you've been waiting for, the one your Hebrew Bible talks about, the one who did these miracles in front of you, the one who conquered death himself by the power of God. He is the one. He is both Lord and Messiah. And you killed him. I've said this before, but I have a friend whose father was a preacher, and he used to say in his sermons sometimes, he said, if I stepped on your toes this morning, I'm sorry, I was aiming for your heart. (laughs) And I think Peter was aiming right at their heart. You see, Peter's speech here is not primarily to put this crowd on blast. No. At its very core, it is an invitation to do what they didn't do the first time, accept Jesus as the true king, as the Messiah, and to submit to him. You see, it was an offer to have their wrongs made right, to have their sins forgiven. In many ways, it was a second chance for them. That's the good news of the gospel. It is a second chance. It was an invitation to be saved. Look at verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do now? We see that we really messed up. We believe you that he was the Messiah. We saw the miracles. We even saw or at least heard about him being raised back to life. What do we need to do? You see, the purpose of guilt is not to make us beat ourselves up. It is to prompt action. What should we do? And the answer to this question is is not, well, sorry. No, there's nothing you can do. You messed up. You had your one chance. Sorry for you. Too bad. And that should give us hope, especially for some of us. And I know some of you, I I know there are people in your life, for some of you, it's your children who have wandered away, or maybe they're just not as connected to Jesus and the church as you would like. There are others who have friends that you've tried to talk to about Jesus and talk to about faith, but for whatever reason, they just keep their distance. And there's others who have relatives and loved ones or coworkers, and you just keep praying for them and keep trying to get them to see the light and I would say to you don't stop there is always hope as long as there is breath in their lungs there is hope God does not give up on anyone if God didn't give up on this crowd the very the ones the very ones who put Jesus on the cross he won't give up on anyone else so Peter answers the question What shall we do? Where do we go from here? Verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter says, There is something you can do, there is hope. There is an anticipated and desired response for this invitation for salvation. And here it is. Repent and be baptized. Let your guilt move you to action, to sorrow, to repentance. Admitting your wrongdoing and not just admitting it, but turning away from it. That's repentance. And surrender your life, surrender your will to Christ as you die to self, are buried in the water and raised, resurrected, if you will, to live a new life, 
as a new creation with a new identity and new purpose. As you probably know, baptism is really important to us here. The New Testament seems overwhelming in its emphasis on baptism and the conversion process. And I don't have time to give an exhaustive study of baptism right now. We've done that before. You can go back and listen to some of those. We also have a very helpful booklet on our website. It's under the About Us tab on our website. You've got to do a little digging, but you'll find it. It's by a minister named Tim Kelly. And I asked him, hey, I really like this, what you wrote. It's, it's relatively short. It's easy to understand. It's a great description. Can we use that? And he said, absolutely. So we posted it on our website several years ago. If you want a more exhaustive study of baptism, if you are talking to someone, your children or a coworker or a friend about baptism, I would just recommend that resource. There's other great resources out there, but that's just one that we make readily available. But if you're like me, you talk to some of your religious friends who de-emphasize baptism. And they de-emphasize it because they say that is a work and you can't do any kind of work to be saved. We aren't saved by any work we do. And I think all of us, hopefully all of us, would agree with that. We're not saved by any work we do. Paul tells us that very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by what? Not by works, so that no one can boast. Let's be clear. We do not save ourselves. We are saved by God's grace. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves, but that doesn't mean we do nothing. You see what I'm saying there? There's nothing we can do to save ourselves, but that doesn't mean we do nothing. What did Paul say? He said, we are saved by grace through what? Through faith. What is faith? Well, it's believing in Jesus. It's the very thing that Peter's crowd at Pentecost did not do. They did not believe he was the true one, the Messiah, the King of Israel. And so faith is believing that, right? Yes, but there's more to the story. And James tells us there's more to the story. For example, in James 2, verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Pretty strong words there. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but that faith prompts action. That faith prompts a response. We get the invitation. God has done the work, and we must respond in faith maybe you've heard this example before you know I can I can say I believe or I have faith that a parachute will get me safely to the ground I can say that all day I can believe that in my heart and mind but when do I demonstrate that faith when I'm in that plane and I strap on that parachute and I jump out of that plane which by the way is never going to happen unless that plane is about to go down. That's the only way it's gonna happen, okay? And then probably it's too late, so it's not happening. But, but when do I demonstrate that faith? It's not when I say, yeah, I think that parachute will get me down safely. It's when I put it on. You see, faith prompts action and a response. What did the crowd at Pentecost ask? What must we do? We submit in faith to what God has done through Christ. I like what Lagarde Smith said about it. He said this, baptism saves us, not using the language of scripture, 
not because of the external ritual of washing in water, what we do, but because the act of faith puts us into contact with the saving blood of Christ, in other words, what he has already done. So the invitation is extended. People say, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Repentance is that turning away. And that is an action, isn't it? Repentance is an action. It's something we do. Yet no one that I've ever heard argues that repentance is a work that tries to earn salvation. Baptism, on the other hand, is actually something that is done to us. In the text, passive voice is used. Be baptized. We submit to Jesus in faith as we are baptized, reenacting his death, burial, and resurrection, Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. And so Peter says, there is hope. There is a way. When they say, what must we do? How do we respond to this invitation to call on the name of the Lord? There is an answer. Turning from sin and turning to Jesus is how we say yes to the invitation. It's how we say yes to the grace of God. Specifically, we accept Jesus as the true king of our lives. We repent from from sinful ways. That doesn't mean we're perfect, but we turn from sin, from sinful hearts and sinful actions, and we surrender our lives in baptism, beginning a new life in Christ. We call on his name. Do you remember what Peter said? You're baptized into his name. He didn't just say call on his name. He said you're baptized into his name. Well, that day at Pentecost, the crowd heard what Peter was saying. And many of them responded to the invitation. Back in our text, verse 40. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He wasn't saying you have the ability to save yourselves, to send yourselves to heaven. That's not what he was saying. He was saying don't be passive. Don't sit there and do nothing. Receive the invitation. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. And the revolution began that still invades our dark world today. A while back, a couple of weeks ago, we got to attend a wedding. We got an invitation. We RSVP'd and said we would be there, and we showed up for an outdoor wedding in June. I think it was May. It was May. No, it was, it was in the shade. It wasn't too bad. But more than us accepting the invitation, we got to witness two people accept the invitation that they had given each other. The invitation to do life together. The invitation to live in a covenant relationship with each other, with God. And like all weddings, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. You see, in this wedding, there were people watching. There were witnesses, family, friends, people there to support the couple, people there to see what was happening. And in the wedding ceremony, they, they sealed the covenant. There were rings. There were vows spoken. And of course, they had all the fancy clothes on, the wedding dress, the suits, the ties, all the nice clothes everyone was wearing. And in that ceremony, at the end, the preacher announced this couple and announced them by their new name, their new identity, because she was taking his name. And of course, 
all night. There was great celebration. Now, it's not the perfect analogy, but there's a lot of parallels between that and what happens in those waters. You see, there are witnesses there. Baptism is a public thing, and there are people to see and be a part of it, community of faith, to join the one who is making that commitment. And in many ways, there are signs and symbols of the covenant. Baptism is extremely symbolic, as we just talked about, the death, burial, and resurrection. There are vows spoken and embedded in that decision to to live one's life under the lordship of Christ. You take on the name of Christ. We're baptized into his name. You become a Christian and you wear special clothes. Galatians 3.27 says we are, when we're baptized, we are clothed with Christ. And of course, there's a celebration. We celebrate when someone is baptized. And someone often says the angels in heaven are celebrating, and I think that's true. It's a great celebration as people receive that invitation and respond, saying, I want to live with Jesus and for Jesus. If that's the case this morning, it's time for you to do that, to repent and be baptized. We would love to help you with that this morning. If we can encourage you and pray for you, we will do that as well. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor, a room right behind me. You can go there in just a minute. They'll pray for you, or you can come down to the front, and we'll try to encourage you today. There's something we can do. We invite you to stand and sing. Let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich.